Good evening, Crypt Keepers. It's time for a special announcement. You all know about the infamous Zombie Road from our podcast, a real-life dark forest just west of St. Louis. Well, we're planning a free Zombie Road tour on Saturday, October 28th at noon. All are welcome, but the tour will include descriptions of violence, death, and hauntings. Zombie Road boasts an array of hauntings, including shadow people, a railroad worker's spirit, a lady in white, old blue, the mummy, a monkey man, flannel man, black-eyed kids, and so much more. Deaths were commonplace in the area, beginning with Native American battlegrounds, suicides, accidental deaths, and murders. The tour will be 100% free, and we will have some merch for sale, so bring some cash. Join us for a Halloween party like no other on the infamous Zombie Road. Feel free to come dressed up in your scariest costume. We'll see you there Saturday, October 28th at 12 p.m. Central Time. Sherman Beach Park, 1582 St. Paul Road, Baldwin, Missouri, 63021. Good evening, Crypt Keepers, and welcome. Welcome to another episode of Cryptique. I'm joined, as always, by my partner on this journey through the cosmos, Ryan. And today, we're just going to jump right into it. So email us at cryptiquepodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on TikTok at cryptique underscore podcast. YouTube at cryptique podcast. X is at podcast evil. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Truth Social, you can find us on Gab, you can find us on Instagram. And please check out our merch at our store, that's at crypticpodcaststore.com. So this episode, we mentioned Taylor a couple episodes ago, and Taylor, she suggested this episode for yokai. So thanks to Taylor for this suggestion, because this is going to turn out to be a kind of scary, kind of cool, kind of fun episode. You want to read some emails? Yeah, sure. I don't think we're getting much hate mail yet, so I don't need to be too hesitant. All right, so Erica from Parts Unknown, I guess she doesn't want to right. be tracked down, doesn't want to be Clinton for That's listening right. to us, wants more girl power episodes like the beautiful samurai and the Ann Kniebe interview. All right, now we've got Davis F., who writes in, I love the Donaldson story you guys have been teasing for like a decade and a half now. <laughs> Let's <Yeah>. hear it. <laughs> it's pressure. That's, that's it's pressure. Bad. Yeah. That's all right. I'll, I'll finish reading the book probably in the next couple <laughs> days. All right. Next, uh, we have Babs. From a town that we're not going to try to pronounce in India who says that she loves the episode with Michael Cremo and suggests an episode on the monkey man. A half man, half monkey that invades people's homes. Yeah, it's kind of like India's Bigfoot type creature. So, 
Yeah, we'll mm. do we'll do something on that. But what are we talking about tonight? <laughs> Sorry, I just thought of that Bigfoot bottle. <laughs> tonight we are talking about yokai, meaning strange apparition in Japanese, which are supernatural entities or spirits in Japanese folklore. And we've talked about mm-hmm. yokai before. I'm sure not a lot. Not we in, like yeah, we depth. focused yeah. on the. Um, the uh, Japanese angry spirits in an episode, and we're going to get into some more fun stuff tonight. Some scary, but more fun. Mm. So the term comprises two kanji characters, both signifying suspicious and doubtful. Unlike Western demons, yokai are spirits and entities with a range of behaviors from malevolent to benevolent towards humans. They can have animal-like features, humanoid appearances, or even resemble inanimate objects. So this is something that I've noticed with Japanese media or Mm -hmm. culture. And I don't know if you can really... I knew people in high school and college who really thought they understood Japanese culture because they read a lot of, like, manga. Yeah. Like, well, I've read... I've I've read 5,000 pages of One Piece. So I understand Japanese culture. It's like, I don't think you do. But one of the things that I've seen in so many different shows and comics and things like that is this idea that you have supernatural entities, but they often have their own motivations. Yeah. They're not specifically just evil or specifically just good. You know, like a lot of these cartoons and movies and whatever have like demons, like they refer to them as demons, Mm -hmm. but we'd probably just refer to them as like creatures or spirits. That there's duality yeah yeah they have their own like they're doing they're not just uh doing their things like an automaton mm-hmm. like they have they have some kind of motivation which i think is way more interesting than there's just a bad thing that is like a force of nature yeah i haven't i haven't i do love uh japanese like manga art but i've never read a book you know back to front so <laughs> i have it's really hard to get into when you haven't done it in a while because you read it in the opposite order yeah like for us you read it back to front like everything is backwards yeah Muy difficult. E- and even in the middle of reading some of them it's like you turn oh, the page the wrong that's way that's why this doesn't make sense <laughs> or, or you just read the panels in the wrong direction yeah it's like sorry i've got 20 years of reading you know, Spider-Man and Doctor Strange and stuff. And now I got to read the opposite way because I'm reading Lupin the Third. Anyway, so shape-shifting is a common power of mm. yokai. Yeah. Japanese folklorists view yokai as personifications of unexplainable phenomena. During the Edo period, artists like... <laughs> Seiken? I'm just going to say Seiken, created new yeah. yokai, drawing inspiration from folk tales and imagination. See, I think it would be cheating to use a pronunciation guide at this point. <laughs> Today, some yokai are mistakenly thought to have roots in traditional folklore. So let's get into concept. The perception of yokai and the phenomena associated with them varies widely in Japanese culture and throughout their historical periods. Going back to ancient times, a higher number of supernatural events were attributed to yokai, and that would be the natural flow as, you know, we we learned, oh, this is actually caused by this. It's not a, you know, anthropomorphic futon that did it. It's, you know, the husband <laughs> choked his wife or, you know, whatever. So 
so that would stand to reason. According to Japanese animism, spirit-like entities resided in everything, including natural phenomena and objects, with peaceful spirits bringing good fortune and violent spirits causing ill fortune and disasters. Ancestors and revered elders could also be considered protective spirits, while animals, objects, and natural features were revered or appeased based on their nature. So, yeah, uh, revered, I think, could also kind of be afraid, right? Like, ooh, if I don't do this, the sure. spider lady's going to get me. So, yeah, kind of the way you respect something that you fear as well. Yeah, yeah. Rituals were performed to convert harmful spirits into benevolent ones aiming to prevent misfortune and explain unexplained events. The failure of these rituals resulted in spirits becoming yokai. As supernatural events decreased over time, yokai depiction in scrolls and paintings became standardized and less fearsome, evolving into caricatures. Yokai tales and legends found their way into public entertainment, especially during and after the Edo period, leading to the formalization of yokai mythology and lore. When you look at uh, Pokemon and Digimon, and I think there's some other games like that, a lot of those are based on yokai. You want to tell us a little bit about the ancient history? Sure. In ancient Japan, yokai, or strange phenomena, were frequently mentioned in texts. References to mysterious entities like oni appeared in ancient texts, establishing a rich literary tradition around yokai. Despite their literary presence, yokai weren't visually depicted until the Middle Ages, starting from the Kamakura period. The line between divine and supernatural blurred with entities like Kappa, which we've talked about before, sometimes regarded as gods or yokai, depending on the region. So possibly misidentification or just labeling things different ways, the way we have Bigfoot as, you know, Yowie in some parts of the world or Sasquatch yeah, and others. It's good this transformation from god to yokai and vice versa highlights the complexity of Japanese folklore and mythology. During medieval Japan, the visual representation of yokai gained momentum. While some publications had religious themes, others were purely for entertainment, marking a shift where yokai became popular subjects of amusement. And we will get into some really good ones for amusement. <laughs> These works featured stories of yokai extermination, often emphasizing human superiority over these supernatural beings. Uh, various emaki which is the Japanese word for illustrated scrolls, you know, depicted yokai. I mean, they had basically books with just beautiful paintings and artwork and descriptions of, of each one. So, you know, that would be something that would be fun to go back and be like, hey, can I see your, you know, 17th century yokai books? And they'll be like, yes, if you wear a mask and gloves. There were... There were also tales of yokai mutations of animals. Sukumogami Yamaki depicted objects gaining spirits and planning evil deeds, only to be exercised and sent to peace. The Edo period marked a significant shift in the yokai narrative after the period of warring states, ushering in new developments in their portrayal and interpretation. What about modern history? During the Edo period from 1603 to 1868, 
the fascination with yokai and Japanese culture reached new heights. 1677 saw a featured collection of tales about different types of monsters. 1706 introduced adapted Chinese tales into a Japanese context, featuring again mysterious or supernatural creatures. In 1716, Sisetsu Kojin included an entry on yokai, emphasizing various mysterious phenomena and methods of exorcism. Mm-hmm. So I guess just like removal of yokai. I don't know. It seems like yokai are... Well, I mean, we're saying that they're a catch-all for mysterious phenomena. So I guess you Sometimes you to gotta exercise your flip-flops. You can't just necessarily throw your... It happens. Yeah, you can't... <laughs> I was thinking you can't, <laughs> can't just throw your futon out because it's secretly a yokai. You gotta... Anyway. <laughs> In 1788, Masayoshi Katao... Sure. Katao? Katao. It's definitely Katao. Masayoshi Katao issued a diagram book of yokai, questioning the existence of these creatures and their representation based on societal fears. So we're seeing over the years in their own media and culture. They're becoming less relevant. You know, going from. Yeah, well, and, and an interest in it too. Like, here's a collection of monsters. Mm-hmm. Here's monsters that we're importing from other cultures. Got to catch them all. And here we're getting more into yokai specifically, like what they are, how to get rid of them. Are they really real? You know, is it a cultural thing? Uh, This era also saw widespread use of printing press technology, fostering a culture of publications. So around this time, you're going to start seeing more, just more information, more easily spread information about these as well. Kashihan shops disseminated books fixing public perceptions of yokai. So kind of getting a standardization. When we say fixing, you're right, exactly. Kind of like how, you know, vampires, there are different legends until Bram Stoker. Yeah. Or at least I would say there were. I mean, they still kind of play with the vampire formula, but. That's the accepted. You know, I think there's. The accepted vampires, the Bram Stoker vampire. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if zombies have found that yet because you still have like we're working on fast it. zombies, slow zombies, you know, whatever. Yes, <laughs> we need a definitive zombie. All right, previous <laughs> previous diverse interpretations such as Kappa became standardized due to published works. So again, people kind of solidifying mm-hmm. a standard idea of what these creatures are. The popularity of a game where ghost stories were told led to the creation of new entertaining yokai tales, including whimsical beings. Whimsical. Whimsy. Yokai found their way into ukiyo-e art, with renowned artists depicting these creatures. Now, do you know what ukiyo-e is? Ukiyo-e, if we're pronouncing that right, is a style of Mm -hmm. Japanese woodblock prints. And painting, so just art essentially, that was prevalent from the 17th through 19th centuries. And the term essentially translates to pictures of the floating world. And is generally, they're generally about life, things like that. I think that, you know, just looking at some of the types of artwork attributed to that style, I think most of us probably have seen something like it before. Yokai characters became popular in toys, games, and other sorts of, you know, culturally loved figures. Despite their origins in fear, yokai became endearing characters, reflecting the evolving cultural perception of these supernatural entities. 
During the late 19th to early 20th centuries, the influence of Western ideas and translated publications began to shape the concept of yokai in Japanese culture. In 1891, introduction of folk tales from Europe, including Grimm's fairy tales, to Japanese audiences, which you know would eventually lead to more yokai. In 1896, authors started to explore the study of yokai, reflecting a growing interest in understanding these creatures from a scientific perspective, and that's kind of like what a folklorist would do, right? So they would look into these, they would find like, okay, well, you know, this one from this 1500s or 1600s was meant to explain, I don't know, earthquakes or, or whatever. And they kind of explore the connection between uh, folklore and reality. In 1900, a famous kabuki play was performed featuring various yokai characters like Kasa Ipon Ashi and skeletons. Concepts like the god of poverty, the god of illness, and death deities entered Japanese discussions. So, you know, that would kind of suck. Like, if you're the creator and you create gods and you say, oh, you're going to be the god of handsome and you're going to be the goddess of beauty. Oh, you're going to be the god of poverty. <laughs> Fuck! Why? Why did I get the... I drew the short yeah. straw. I got the god of poverty, which means I'm a god, but I don't have shit. So... <laughs> <laughs> this period... Uh, this period marked the adaptation of Western folktales into Japanese yokai narratives, highlighting the evolving nature of yokai lore in response to cultural shifts and global influences. And one of the coolest things about yokai is there's constantly new ones being made. And I think that goes to, you know, you talk about intention, what you put out in the world. And uh, these people that are creating these new yokai are putting them out there and then people are focusing on them. Who knows, Ryan? Who knows? Maybe these people are actually mm -hmm. creating yokai. What's next? Oh, yeah. That could definitely be... Well, from 1926 to 1989, yokai continued to be popularized through various forms of media, contributing to their widespread recognition among all types of age groups. Media, such as paper, theater, manga, and television, played a significant role in shaping public knowledge and familiarity with yokai. So again, kind of um, solidifying their image. Absolutely. However, traditional oral storytelling by elders became rare, and the unique regional context and backgrounds of these stories were not easily conveyed. So, yeah. Muddy waters. <sighs> yeah, well, things kind of get um, homogenized. That's the word I'm looking for. When the mainstream media gets a hold of it, you know? People don't want your specific West Virginia yokai. They want the yokai that they hear about all over the place. <laughs> yeah. So, with the modernization of society, many aspects of classical Japanese culture, including yokai, face challenges in retaining their significance and relevance, and mm -hmm. also kind of their uniqueness based on their region or whatever it was, like you were saying earlier, that they were sort of designed to explain. Yeah. 
While some yokai from classical sources remain popular, new fictional yokai were continuously being invented, often inspired by urban legends or just scary stories passed around at schools. This trend led to the coining of the term modern yokai in the 1970s, encompassing both classical yokai and newly created ones. And it's totally possible that modern, you know, newly created ones because of intention could have some real impact. Absolutely. Just like you were saying, I mean, intention means a lot. And I, it, it wouldn't be the first time mm-hmm. that I've heard of stuff like that. You know, there was, uh, do you ever listen no, to I Sapphire Sandala? Mm-hmm. Her stuff? She is, she's on, um, Paranormal Caught on. I know who you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. yeah she's, she's on Paranormal Caught on Camera. She's on the stupid ghost. Town yes. Yeah. Shows, she's got yeah. that too, which I watched like half an episode of. And those, I just, I don't know. I couldn't make myself care, but she, <laughs> she has a podcast called stories of Sapphire that I don't listen to a lot, but every once in a while, she has a really good episode. And there was one where she was talking to a guy who just, he was like really big into storytelling. Mm-hmm. You know, he was talking about reading ghost stories from the time he was a little kid, and he was too young to realize that not everything he read was true. So he assumed that, like, a lot of ghost stories uh-huh. and things that he was reading that were fiction were real. Uh-huh. And then when he realized just, like, the power that storytelling can have, he started making up stories. And he was talking about making up stories about uh, this neighboring school, mm-hmm. you know, that somebody had died there under these circumstances. It was like, a, I think a religious school. And he talked about basically like the, you know, creepy haunting of an old nun or something like that. And then years and years later met a girl who had gone to that school and she was telling him all these stories. Hmm. And he was like, Oh, I made, I made all those up. And she goes, but people have actually seen this nun. And they've seen this ghost. Like, all the stories that he had made up Mm -hmm. spread so much that people believe them, and they had actually seen the figures he talked about. It's pretty cool. So, yeah, it just shows you the power of intention or sometimes maybe just imagination. Sure. But the popularity of these modern yokai was reflected in various publications and even dictionaries Mm -hmm. aimed at children. These books introduced a mix, like we've been talking about, of the classical and newly created yokai, sparking creativity and emotional development in young readers. It's a good thing. Yeah, it is a good thing, and it's a good tool to use for that kind of thing. You know, I think, like, Pokemon probably was a big influence for creatives who mm -hmm. were kids when that was coming out. Well, also, uh, this is just an aside, but if you have a kid that's struggling in math... And they like baseball. Get them involved with all the stats. How do you figure out somebody's batting average? How do you figure out their on-base percentage? There's things that kids can relate to that make it fun. And they're like, what? Wait, wait, this is math? So just just throwing that out there. Yeah, it's a good idea. Good point. You, you have to contextualize things. Right. In a way that makes them enjoyable. Or at least bearable. <laughs> so... <laughs> Criticism arose due to the blending of, you know, more traditional and then more contemporary yokai with concerns that it might eventually trivialize these traditional legends. Makes sense. Uh, Yeah. However, proponents argued that this practice of inventing new yokai had historical precedents, citing examples from the Edo period. 
Some viewed the introduction of various yokai characters as a positive way to nurture creativity and emotional growth, just like we talked about with the books. Mm -hmm. The continued evolution of yokai in modern media reflects the dynamic nature of folklore and its ability to adapt to changing cultural contexts while preserving its essence. And we'll tell you about some of our favorite yokai after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Let's start with Amabi. Amabi is a legendary Japanese mermaid or merman with a bird beak-like mouth and three legs or tail fins who allegedly emerges from the sea, prophesizes either an abundant harvest or an epidemic, and instructed people to make copies of its likeness to defend against illness. So the Amabi has experienced a resurgence in popularity amidst the COVID-19 pandemic because this legendary creature from Japanese folklore with its unique appearance and its promise of protection against disease and calamity has captured the imagination of people once again. The hashtag Amabi Challenge on social media platforms where users share their artistic interpretations of the Amabi has contributed to its renowned prominence. The Amabi's message of hope and protection during times of crisis resonates with people and its image has been used creatively to raise awareness about disease prevention measures. Tell us about the Tatsu. Tatsu or Japanese dragons hold a significant place in Japanese folklore and culture. We all know dragons are pretty big in Japan. They are mythical creatures that are both feared and revered because those things often go hand in hand. Yes. With their origins deeply rooted in ancient beliefs and legend. These dragons are similar in appearance to the ones found in Western medieval lore, although they have their own unique characteristics and symbolism in Japanese tradition. To symbolize yin and yang represents the balance of masculine and feminine energies, a concept deeply ingrained in various aspects of Japanese culture, including folklore and spirituality. Damn right. <laughs> the ability of Tatsu to shapeshift as seen in the legend of the sea god Ryujin adds to their mystique. This ability to transform is a common trait in many yokai, and honestly in a lot of Japanese media in general, mm -hmm. allowing them to interact with the human world in various forms. The belief that the Japanese imperial family is descended from dragons emphasizes the mythical and divine origins of the nation's rulers further emphasizing the dragon's significance in the culture. In modern Japan, dragons are still revered and their symbolism is still widely present in festivals, art, and architecture. Their presence in temples and shrines highlights their protective and auspicious qualities, signifying the enduring belief in their mystical powers. Boom. The Kirin holds a special place in Asian mythology and culture. In both Chinese and Japanese traditions, the Kirin is a mythical creature known for its serene and majestic demeanor. It's often depicted as a fire-breathing creature with the body of a deer, dragon-like scales, and a flowing mane. The Kirin symbolizes purity, justice, and wisdom, and its appearance is considered an omen of prosperity and good fortune. The origins of the Kirin can be traced back to Chinese mythology, where it's considered one of the four benevolent animals, along with the phoenix, dragon, and tortoise. 
In Chinese folklore, the Kirin's powers surpass those of the phoenix and dragon, making it a revered and powerful creature. It's interesting to note the connection between the Kirin and the giraffe in Japanese culture. The Japanese word for giraffe is Kirin, possibly due to the animal's physical similarities such as horns and long legs. This linguistic coincidence has led to the Kirin being associated with the giraffe in Japan. And the Kirin serves as the mascot for the Japanese beverage company Kirin. Creatively enough. And its image can be found on various Kirin products. So that's kind of cool. I mean, why not? Why not have a yokai as your, you know, your symbol? So. Yeah. All right. Next we have, yeah, Ning, Ningyo. Yeah, Ningyo. Yeah, pretty good. That sounds good. <laughs> so this stands apart from the typical depiction of mermaids found in Western folklore. Rather than being enchanting and benevolent, Ningyo are portrayed as fish-like creatures with more resemblance to fish than humans. They're often described as having golden scales, long fingers, and sharp talons, emphasizing their aquatic and otherworldly nature. In Japanese folklore, it is believed that capturing and consuming the flesh of a Ningyo can grant the consumer eternal life. This belief has led many fishermen to attempt capturing one, risking their lives in the process. If one fails to capture a Ningyo successfully, they may face curses or calamities, with entire villages being threatened by large waves as a consequence. Even accidentally capturing a Ningyo in a fishing net is considered a bad omen and a harbinger of misfortune. To counteract this, it is believed that any captured Ningyo must be promptly returned to the sea to avoid bringing calamity upon oneself and their community. Another mermaid. Gotta watch out. Mm-hmm. Except it's more like uh, it's more like Man Spider than Spider Man. <laughs> I don't true. know if you remember that series from like oh I do the nineties late nineties yeah. yeah that's like Man Bat. Like, yeah 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 it's like yeah what would it be like if Spider Man was more horrifying? <laughs> yeah. yeah well it's Man Spider. All right yeah. moving on Zashiki Warashi. That is a playful and mischievous yokai from Japanese folklore. These supernatural beings are believed to resemble young children and are known for their pranks. However, they have a unique characteristic. They're only visible to the residents of the house they inhabit. Unlike many other spirits or yokai, having a zashiki warashi in one's home is considered a blessing. It is believed that their presence brings good fortune and luck to the household. To maintain this good fortune, the residents must be careful to treat the Zashiki Warashi with kindness and respect. One way to keep it in the home is by leaving out offerings such as candies or food which they are said to enjoy. By providing these offerings, the household can show their appreciation and ensure the continued presence of the Zashiki Warashi. However, if it disappears from a residence for any reason, it's considered a bad omen. The departure of this yokai may signify that misfortune is on the horizon for the home and its inhabitants. It's in the best interest of the residents to maintain a peaceful and welcoming environment for the Zashiki Warashi to ensure the well-being of their household. I would get sick of like, oh, we got to put out the food for the Zashiki Warashi. Well, hey, I've got to, I can't do that. I've got to put out food for the other one. Well, 
kids, it's your turn to put out the offerings to this goat. You know, it's like, eh, just too much. We'll tell you all about Japanese raccoon dogs after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. What's next? What's next is what I want my next pet to be, the Tanuki. Also known as Japanese raccoon dogs, these hold a special place in Japanese folklore and pop culture. They're often portrayed as mischievous and magical beings capable of shape-shifting and creating illusions. Pretty typical uh, powers in Japanese pop culture, honestly. Yeah, yeah. One of the most distinctive features of the Tanuki's portrayal is the comically large testicles, which are often exaggerated in artistic depictions for humorous effect. Because Japanese humor is weird, but man, balls are always funny. Gigantism of the balls. <laughs> it's probably even more funny since so many dogs are deballed now. <laughs> like me and Kim were driving over to a cousin's house a couple weeks ago, and we were like, this guy was walking a like a pit bull or something down the street, and I was like, "Ah, look at his balls!" Because <laughs> you just don't see it anymore; <laughs> they were massive. Anyway, <laughs> statues of Tanuki can commonly be found outside establishments like restaurants and bars in Japan. Ah, oh, I gotta get one. Uh, these statues are believed to bring good luck and prosperity, making them a popular choice for businesses hoping to attract customers. Now, you said you want this to be your next dog. So you want a raccoon dog with comically large testicles as your next pet. Yeah, he's going to be my buddy, man. We've got enough interference on the microphones. We don't need comically large testicle dragging across the floor to interfere <laughs> any more than what we've already got. So. Oh, no, that's uh, that's just uh, Otis dragging his balls across the floor upstairs. Otis. Otis the Japanese like spirit raccoon dog. Thing. Yeah, it's a perfect name. <laughs> Oh, man. I'm ready. I'm excited. I'm going to get on eBay and see if I... Oh, Japanese eBay. What is it? Yahoo Auctions? See if I can find one of these statues, at least. Uh... <laughs> It'll be in the cover art, for sure. Uh, okay, so the Tanuki is known for its association with financial success, making it a symbol of wealth and good fortune. <laughs> you think it would be Which like... I... Uh... It would be like the god of uh, um, fertility. Like fertility, yeah. yeah. In modern folklore, the Tanuki is rivaled in popularity and magical abilities only by the Kitsune, the fox yokai. So that makes sense. I've seen that in a lot of manga and anime. Uh, both creatures are known for their shape-shifting abilities and cunning nature, and they often appear in folk tales and stories. According to local beliefs, the presence of Tanuki residing on shrine grounds might protect them during the air raids of World War II. Alright, so we just mentioned it. Do you want to get into Kitsune? Kitsune, or Japanese fox, is fascinating and complex in Japanese folklore. These shape-shifting creatures, which you've probably seen if you've, you know, even ever read like a manga or anything, you you know, or watched a, a show, they're probably in there somewhere yeah usually is like a honestly at some point they turn into like a hot young girl with like or that's supposed to be hot 
with fox ears. I feel like how young because everything Ryan. has to be. I'm not just... taking that bait. I'm just saying that usually in a lot of these shows, the characters are all supposed to be like high school age. Yeah. And Japanese media tends to um, emphasize, honestly, what look like prepubescent traits to me in yeah. females. Yep. So all the girls look super, super young, and all the men, like, all the boys by, like, I mean, if you watch uh, Yu Yu Hakusho, those guys are all supposed to be, like, 14. Hmm. Haven't but when they it. have their shirts off, they look like Conan, you know? Like, they you know have you like these, Conan. like, super hyper-developed <laughs> masculine traits. <clears throat> anyway. All right. So... They're often depicted as cunning and intelligent, as, you know, foxes are throughout the world, possessing magical abilities that allow them to transform into this human form you referenced. Kitsuni are widely known for their ability to deceive or prank unsuspecting humans, and they often appear in folk tales and stories as both benevolent and mischievous beings. Kitsune are typically categorized into two main groups. One spiritual beings some kitsune are revered as spiritual beings and act as messengers to the gods they're associated with inari the shinto deity of rice and agriculture as well as prosperity and fertility inari shrines such as the famous fushimi inari taisha in kyoto are dedicated to these fox spirits these kitsune are often portrayed as benevolent and are believed to bring good fortune but they're also portrayed as trickster foxes. Wild Kitsune are known for their love of trickery. They enjoy playing pranks on humans and their abilities to possess and manipulate people are well documented in folklore. While some of their actions might seem malicious, Kitsune are also seen as protectors of their territories and are known to repay kindness with blessings. In Japanese mythology, Kitsune possess multiple tales and the number of tales they have indicates their age, wisdom, and power. The older and more powerful a Kitsune becomes, the more tales it acquires. Kitsune with nine tales are particularly renowned and are considered immensely powerful beings. The association between Kitsune and humans is complex, reflecting the dual nature of these creatures and folklore playful tricksters, and revered protectors. Their captivating stories continue to be a significant part of Japanese cultural heritage. What about the Yamanba? Yamama. Yamanba. <laughs> Yamanba. All right. The Yamanba, also known as Yamalba, is a fascinating yokai in Japanese folklore. Often depicted as an evil witch, she resides in the mountains and forests of Japan, where she lures unsuspecting travelers with offers of lodging and meals. Once her victims are asleep, she reveals her true form and her malevolent intentions. So this is almost more of a traditional. Yeah, I version. think we covered this <clears throat> this one in our uh, Japanese Vengeful Spirits episode, so I didn't want to get too much into it. If, but... Yeah, if we didn't, we at least covered ones that are really similar. It's... Uh, it's very much like an old cautionary tale, like a fable mm. kind of thing. Don't trust strangers. So definitely, it, yeah, it's it's not the modern yokai that you see in <laughs> in like anime where you know. They're have you ever have you seen harem anime? Harem? No. Yeah, that's what they refer to it as, like stuff like Tenchi Muyo. No. Where the show 
has a plot, typically, but most of it revolves around some clueless guy who has like a hundred girls after him. And everything is very suggestive and like the comedy behind it is like he's just so dumb he doesn't know everybody wants him. Huh. Maybe maybe that's happening with me too. Yeah, I, <laughs> totally. Could be. And in a lot of those though, you have these you know, these entities that are like Yokai or they're aliens or they're whatever else, but they're you know, it's again that uh thing of that they are supposed to be like an attractive young female. But it's okay. It's okay that they look like they're like 14 because they're actually a 500-year-old like <laughs> yokai spirit. Yeah. And if you – this is just me having been on the internet a long time because that's like a pretty common defense when people are like r- really into one of these characters. They're like, you're into like a 14-year-old girl and it's like, actually, she's a 500-year-old wizard. Nice. <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. No, I'm into nine-tailed foxes, you sicko. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm into this bear yokai spirit that just happens to turn into this form every once in a while. Yeah, I think it's wishful thinking on a lot of people's parts, but yeah, but that seems to be a more modern thing. Is like it's it's almost more of just a creature with these mysterious powers that can be like your friend, your partner, your protector, or an enemy. Yeah, they kind of I guess would fit a lot of. They wear a lot of hats in pop culture it's very true all right let's jump ahead to the suchigumo the suchigumo both in historical accounts and yokai folklore embodies the terrifying power of nature in the unknown in historical records from the warring states period the term suchigumo was used to describe rebel factions reflecting the fear and menace associated with this mythical creature In yokai folklore, the Suchigumo is portrayed as a massive spider, often of incredible size, capable of taking on entire armies. In some versions of the legend, the Suchigumo takes on the guise of a shape-shifting woman, luring its victims before revealing its true form, a giant spider with a belly full of baby spiders, symbolizing its potential to spawn countless horrors. This aspect of the legend underscores the fear of the unknown and the hidden dangers lurking in the natural world, making the Suchigumo a captivating and frightening yokai. What's next? Tell us about the Tengu. The Tengu has a rich and complex history in Japanese folklore. Originally depicted as a bird-like creature with human and avian features, the Tengu has undergone significant transformation over the centuries. Lots of things evolved through culture. In ancient texts and folktales, Tengu were often portrayed as supernatural beings residing in mountains, skilled in martial arts, and capable of causing mischief or offering guidance to humans. These early depictions contributed to the enduring image of the Tengu as a formidable warrior and a mischievous trickster. However, as the centuries passed and cultural perceptions evolved, the Tengu's appearance also changed. In medieval times, especially during the Edo period, the Tengu's image shifted from a bird-like creature to a more human form. The modern representation of the Tengu is unfeathered and unbeaked, resembling an anthropomorphic being with a long nose, often depicted with martial arts expertise and knowledge of the supernatural. Hi-ya. Hi-ya. <laughs> Pretty good. Supernatural Mr. Miyagi. That's yeah. right. All right. You know what? We'll tell you all about the Oni after a quick break. 
Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Jumping in on the Oni. Oni. Originating from ancient Japanese texts like the Kojiki and Nihon Shoki, have undergone significant transformations in their depictions over the centuries, like most of them that we've talked about. Originally, they were supernatural creatures associated with evil and mischief, often depicted as fearsome, ogre-like beings with horns, sharp fangs, and vividly colored skin, typically red or blue. They were considered malevolent spirits that caused harm and chaos. But, as time passed and cultural influences shifted, the portrayal of Oni evolved. In more recent depictions, Oni have become more anthropomorphic and sometimes even comical in appearance. They may retain their ogre-like features like horns and fangs, but their facial expressions have become less brutish. Often they're portrayed with exaggerated noses and bushy eyebrows, giving them a more caricatured and less menacing appearance. So they've been uh, kind of kidified. I guess, you know, they, they started off as, uh, you know, a creature in a Blumhouse movie and ended mm-hmm. up being, you know, more of a kind of a Shrekky, you know, funny, silly creature. Yeah, more approachable. <laughs> yeah. What's next? Which I don't know if that's good or not. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. Well, yeah, you don't want to approach them because they're still, you know, up to no good. <laughs> Noble yeah. Steed. All right, next we have Ejin. Ejin are fascinating entities representing outsiders from the mysterious world of Ikai, which exists beyond our own reality. These beings have crossed the boundary separating the two worlds, often with a specific purpose or task in mind. The diversity of Ejin encompasses a wide range of characters, from religious figures to craftsmen to beggars and pilgrims. Some are benevolent, while others may have malicious intent. So that duality that we talked about, they're not all just the same with one single purpose or influence. Yeah. One prominent example of a benevolent one is Daikokuten, depicted in various forms of Japanese art. This is often considered the Japanese equivalent of the Hindu deity Mahakala and is revered as a god of wealth. So that's much better than being a god of poverty. <laughs> yes. The Biwa Boku Boku is our first Tsukumogami, or artifact ghost. Oh my god, I feel like I'm just like stumbling over stuff. Oh, this is where it gets fun. You'll like this. (laughs) Have you ever done one of those runs where you have to like step through the tires? I feel like I'm just stumbling through one of those courses. Like I'm I'm barely making it through. (laughs) These yokai are like creepy versions of the singing household objects in Beauty and the Beast. The particular yokai has the head of a biwa, a traditional East Asian string instrument, and the body of a Shinto or Buddhist monk. Hmm. So it'd be like, uh, in the U.S., it'd be like a priest walking around with like a guitar head yep. for a head. <laughs> yep. When the biwa Boku Boku appears, he is either going to sit quietly in your house, weeping about his loneliness and playing a biwa, or he is going to be a huge asshole and dance around your house, plinking his own head to annoy you. <laughs> but how can you avoid either of these undesirable options? Don't neglect or ignore your biwa. The yokai is somehow tied to your personal instrument. And if he has appeared, <laughs> it is because you have made him feel ignored or useless. And I have like three ignored guitars in one of my closets, and I'm going to be watching out for a priest. <laughs> running around, plinking the guitar head, 
coming out of his shoulders. It'd be a great Halloween the less, costume. <laughs> the lesson here is play your instruments or just get rid of them. <laughs> so true. All right, let's talk about the Bora Boraton. The Bora Boraton is another household object-based yokai, though this one is a bit more nefarious than the whiny Biwa. The Bora Boraton is born when a futon has been ignored or underused. Best <laughs> don't ignore your futon. Like you've got a nice bed, a great couch, uh -huh. don't leave the futon out. Don't forget about the yeah. futon, baby. Best case scenario when your napping mat turns on you is that it will loudly leave your home to go have a raucous party somewhere with all the other discontent tea kettles, biwas, and other household objects. Worst case, it's going to float around your house and try to strangle anyone he can find by wrapping his tattered mat parts around the sleeping victim's neck. So, kind of a futon that turns on you. Don't have a futon. <laughs> and when we say futon, we're talking about a Japanese sleeping mat. We're not, you know, actually talking about the thing that converts from a bad couch to a worse bed. <laughs> You know, I've sat on one that was good. I used to have one, and it was pretty awful. Mm -hmm. But I had a friend who, I don't know if she bought it separately, but it was like double the thickness of the normal um, Man. like pad that goes on it. Yeah. And it was like relatively comfortable. Yeah. Well, you found the good one. The one. Yeah, there was one. <clears throat> All right. The Wani Yudo. Waniyudo is more akin to the Western idea of a demon than the entries on the list so far. Waniyudo is depicted as a giant, insane person's disembodied head trapped within the spokes of a flaming ox cart wheel. I mean, I'm sure what? you knew that. But I mean, that's such a. I mean, yeah, that that's just something that pops to mind anyway when I think of supernatural creatures. I mean, you got to be creative. So, what's next? Well, that is definitely creative. Uh, next is Ashiyari Yashiki, which is said to be a major influence to Monty Python's instantly recognizable giant foot. And this thing is a giant dirty foot bristling with hairs that crashes through the ceiling of residential homes in Japan and demands to be cleaned. If you refuse to clean the often mud-caked or blood caked in some instances hairy foot <laughs> then said foot will angrily stomp around your home smashing and breaking anything it comes into contact with <laughs> however clean the foot and everything goes back to the way it was before the giant hairy fleshy foot fell through the ceiling <laughs> boom boom this is man we're getting into some really japanese sounding ones oh it's fun it's fun how about the akaname the Akaname is a night-dwelling demon that strikes fear into the hearts of even the most courageous. Descriptions of the creature are rare, though many depict it as a small, red, goblin-like yokai. The name means both red and filth, hence its red appearance, but you might be wondering where the filth comes in. Akaname haunts bathrooms at night, occupying itself by licking the dirt and mold that accumulates between the tiles. Can it hurt you? No. Akaname are shy creatures and are rarely seen by humans. However, if you have an Akaname in your home, then it's a sure sign that you need to clean your bathroom. 
<laughs> Akaname can spread sickness and disease, but then so too can dirt and mold. So what does an Akaname do exactly? Ryan, it licks your filth. And some people would find that scary. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would love that. That's Hey, you want to clean the bathrooms, dude? You want to do the grout? I'll put out some candy for you. Why not? What's next? We need to hook up the Akaname with the uh, giant foot. There's two problems that would solve each other. Yeah. I wouldn't want to watch it. I wouldn't want to be around (laughs) it. Well, I don't know if the giant sandal would want to be on a nasty foot, but... Or you mean... Oh, no, no, you mean... The the one that licks the filth. Yeah, the filth licker. Filth licker. What a terrible band name. Yeah, well, I'm sure it's probably out there. Probably. All right. Tell us about the Bekazori, or Bakezori. Bakezori. It's described as a wandering sandal with two arms and two legs... But only one eye. Yeah. It is said to spook inhabited households during the night, running around and continuously chanting. Apparently what it chants is they have three eyes and two teeth. And it's possible that this is a, you know, a chant that is mocking other. Yeah. So the Bakazori is, is really a flip flop more than it is you know like a Birkenstock or something it's you know the five dollar flip-flops you pick up at the gas station on the way to your float trip or whatever you do (laughs) in your area yeah and they run around the house chanting Kabirin, Kororin, Kankororin, (laughs) Manuga, Mitsu, Niha, Ninmai which I'm sure is horrific if you understand Japanese but apparently it translates to they or whatever. Somehow it says they have three eyes and two teeth, possibly mocking his more noble cousins, the famous Gata, which you said is a traditional Japanese footwear sandal. OK, so like a more <laughs> upscale version mm-hmm. of footwear than what this thing is supposed to be. Yeah, it's like the Reebok, like the Reebok uh, <laughs> shacks to the Michael Jordans. Okay, that's a good... Yeah, okay, I get that. All right, so this thing belongs to a special group of yokai called Tsukamagami, or Artifact Demons. Mm -hmm. According to Japanese folklore, household items like tools, kitchen appliances, and even clothes of any kind can eventually come to life and receive their own consciousness when ignored or neglected for a long period of time. Apparently, after around 100 years, I guess that's Mm -hmm. when they become one of these uh, Tsukomagami. Bakazori are said to normally be harmless to humans, but they are annoying. That's basically their jam. Their motivation is boredom and frustration or simply revenge and jealousy. Most Bakazori group up with other animated household items or clothes, or they just run away. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which makes me imagine like a sandal with the little bundle at the end of a stick kind of walking down the road <laughs> or the sad music from the end of an old Hulk episode. <laughs> right. Anyway. <laughs> so now we've got, there's some fun ones, right? And yeah. this is the comic relief. So this is good. Yeah. I'm going to tell you about the Abumi Gucci, a living stirrup 
usually it belonged to a fallen soldier. Tales were told how these furred creatures waited where they lay for their fallen soldier to return. So, yeah, if you're out riding a horse, you might have a living stirrup. Yeah. Hey, it happens. This is cryptique. It's possible. What's next? <laughs> Bake chochen, or a living lantern carried by ghosts. And it literally translates to haunted lantern. Mm-hmm. The lantern has a long tongue protruding from its mouth and a pair of eyes. So that's twice as many eyes as that haunted sandal. That's right. It serves as a home for the spirits of people who died with hatred and anger in their hearts and are therefore earthbound. If a person lights one of these haunted lanterns by mistake, then the hateful spirits inside will jump out and attack. All right. So now we've got just a couple quick ones to pump out. <laughs> you want to start? We'll just do these rapid fire. It's only a couple. Eton Momen, a living roll of cotton. It will fly through the air at night and smother people's faces in an attempt to choke them. Caracasa, a living umbrella, often portrayed as having one eye, one foot, and a lolling tongue. <laughs> There's some tongue fetish stuff going on in these uh, yokai. Yeah. Ungaikyo. A living mirror occasionally said to have occult powers. So that could be a cool one if they, you know, you could write a bunch of stories about that. I suppose. <laughs> I'm still thinking about the tongue thing. All right, now we have Zoragami, a living clock. So basically Cogsworth from Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, hopefully <laughs> kind of a cooler one, though. Cogsworth was kind of a uptight. Yeah, a little stuffy. In recent years, there's been a resurgence of interest in yokai culture, leading to a reimagining and repackaging of these creatures for modern audiences, which is usually never a good sign in movies when they're talking about modern audiences. Mm -hmm. Despite the modern adaptations, there's an ongoing effort in Japan to delve deep into yokai scholarship, providing an opportunity for enthusiasts to explore the rich history and inexplicable world of yokai. This exploration allows individuals to uncover the mysteries and complexities of these supernatural beings and appreciate the intricate tapestry of Japanese folklore. So I guess going beyond the surface level of some of these newer pop culture versions and mm -hmm. getting into some of the more intricate, I don't want to just say intricate and complicated or whatever, but you know, the more meaningful, I guess, traditional folklore. One of my favorite things about yokai in general is that it's accepted to add to the pantheon of yokai. So you can actually make up your own, make it cool. And mm -hmm. so you can you can go to Wikipedia and add your own yokai. You never know. It could blow up. Ryan, do you want to hear the yokai I made up? Sure. So my yokai is called Zuru Zuru, and it translates to slither. Do you want to know what its diet is, Ryan? <laughs> yes. You want to know what the Zuru Zuru eats? It eats crumbs that fall down a sloppy eater's shirt. The Zuru Zuru looks like a tiny segmented green inchworm with an old man's face and his mustache always has crumbs in it. 
The Zuruzuru lives in a man's belly button and slithers out to get crumbs of food that have fallen down the host's shirt or in their facial hair. His presence is noted by an extremely itchy belly button. Zuruzuru is a punishment <laughs> for those without table manners. And I just told you where it originated in modern Western countries in 2023. What's your yokai, Ryan? You got to make something up off the top of your head now. No, no, I don't actually, because Ooh. what I wanted to do was use AI. Oh, okay. I know it's a little bit of cheating, but some of the stuff that I've seen AI make up is so goofy. Yeah. I just wanted to tell it to make one up and see what it gives me, whether it's going to be really stupid. Because uh-huh. some of it's really stupid. Uh-huh. I have, I've really experimented, and I know I've told you about it before. I've kind of fed in you know, chapters or pages from books and been like, Hey, you know, create the next thing that happens after this. Mm-hmm. And it's come up with some really stupid stuff before. Um, but it actually came out with a pretty kind of traditional sounding one, which is All what right. I was pulling up. If you could hear me typing, <laughs> let's hear it. Uh, it came up with Kawa no Kage, which translates to shadow of the river. And I have no idea if that's true or not, because chat GPT and a lot of these other large language models make stuff up. <laughs> but it is described as a slender, ethereal creature with long flowing hair that mirrors the ripples of a river. Ooh. Its skin is translucent, shimmering with a bluish hue reminiscent of clear waters. Its eyes are deep and dark like the abyss of the deepest lakes. When it moves, it creates soft, melodic sounds similar to the gentle flow of water over pebbles. So it is known to wander along riverbanks during the twilight hours, especially on misty evenings. Mm. It is said that it can control the flow of water, creating calm streams or turbulent currents at will. That's cool. Those who disrespect the river or pollute its waters may find themselves caught in sudden, unexplained whirlpools or strong currents. Mm. However, to those who show reverence to the water and its surroundings, Kawanokage might bless them with a safe journey, ensuring that they can cross the river without harm or even find an abundance of fish if they are fishing. The Kawanokage feeds on the pure essence of fresh water. It absorbs the morning dew from leaves and the mist that rises from the river. It is also believed to consume the memories of those who have drowned, ensuring that their spirits find peace in the afterlife. That's a cool one. Yeah, it actually is really cool. I was very, very surprised by it. Because the one that I was going to come up with, I didn't have a name, but it was going to be like, you know, a living VHS tape Mm. that like hides under your couch. And if you haven't shown respect to like your childhood stories, it pops out from behind the couch and like tries to strangle you with the tape that's hanging out. That's good. Like, I was just going to come up with something dumb like that. And I was like, oh, I wonder if this will come up with something like really silly that I could build off of. And it did that. And I was like, holy shit, this is actually like, it sounds legit. Yeah. It might be real. Maybe it is real. Maybe it's just like, oh, no, I just looked one up. (laughs) (laughs) I asked it to make one up, but I actually did not look to see if that's something that is real and exists. Let me Google it and make sure. I I didn't see it. I had a list of like 30 or 40 type of yokai. Yeah, I don't see one titled that. Cool. I've seen, yeah, Kapakitsune, Nikomata, Yuri, Kamaitachi, tons and tons, but I don't see that one. 
But yeah, my made up one was going to be something like that. (laughs) I like that VHS tape. That's like an old, you know, it'd be, it would take the form of like whatever your favorite childhood movie was. So like for me, it'd be like a Mulan tape that would come out. And if you don't respect like pop culture of the past, you know, it tries to get you up. Like your favorite childhood movie was Mulan. Mm hmm. Well, my favorite Disney movie, when I'm thinking about tapes, I think of Disney. Huh. Okay. Because I had a lot of Disney VHSs, probably. Well, you didn't have uh, Kazam, did you? Or Shazam, the uh, Sinbad The movie, Sinbad one? Yeah. Oh my god, did I? I think I might have. It's. No, no, it... no. I had the real. the the. Yeah, well, it's from our Mandela effect. I know, yeah, the Mandela Sophie. effect. It was the it was Sinbad playing a genie, mm-hmm. right? That's the Mandela effect one. That's the one that people yeah. falsely remember, because mm-hmm. that's what I remember. But it was it was uh, Shaq, right, or something like that. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, we don't need to get into that. Uh, let's <laughs> get into our final thoughts after a quick break. Good evening, Crypt Keepers. It's time for a special announcement. You all know about the infamous zombie road from our podcast, a real-life dark forest just west of St. Louis. Well, we're planning a free zombie road tour on Saturday, October 28th at noon. All are welcome, but the tour will include descriptions of violence, death, and hauntings. Zombie Road boasts an array of hauntings including shadow people, a railroad worker's spirit, a lady in white, old blue, the mummy, a monkey man, flannel man, black-eyed kids, and so much more. Deaths were commonplace in the area beginning with Native American battlegrounds, suicides, accidental deaths, and murders. The tour will be 100% free and we will have some merch for sale, so bring some cash. Join us for a Halloween party like no other on the infamous Zombie Road. Feel free to come dressed up in your scariest costume. We'll see you there Saturday, October 28th at 12 p.m. Central Time. Sherman Beach Park, 1582 St. Paul Road, Baldwin, Missouri, 63021. back crypt keepers do you have any final thoughts I, I just think it's kind of fun and cool yeah i do too i feel a little bit like i cheated using gpt well, to create my no own you pack. had your own too so well i had my own but i didn't i, I abandoned it pretty quickly after <laughs> i saw how cool what the thing generated was i almost wanted to be like you know come up with a stupid version but it's like the what it came up with was you know i mean it Hypothetically, the way large language models work is they look at patterns typically found in similar works. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that if you have these intricate and almost kind of beautiful stories about yokai, it's going to create something very similar. You know, the way it talked about the 
the appearance of it, the eyes, the sounds mm-hmm. it makes, things like that. You know, I think it's probably based off of similar descriptions of different yokai. What we would say were like real yokai, like yokai that have existing stories out there. Sounds good to me. I think they're just really fun. Yeah, I think they're really fun stories. Yeah, so uh, thanks, Taylor, for the suggestion. This was a fun episode. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope all the Crypt Keepers enjoyed it. And Ryan, tell them what they need to know. Yeah, if you guys want to support us, please interact with whatever you know podcast platform you use. Interact with us on that. You know, uh, like, subscribe, comment, rate. Try to be kind because <laughs> those things help tell those algorithms that this is a decent show and people are engaging with it and that maybe they should recommend it to more people but the chat is the best way that you can help us is to recommend this to somebody else somebody you think is going to like it maybe listen to it with friends we'd love to be part of your routine and we'd also love to hear what you have to say any suggestions maybe your own yokai We'd also love to hear what you guys have to say about the show. We'd love to hear what you want to hear next. And if you want to send us your yokai, whatever you've made up, preferably along with, you know, a picture, description, you know, the kind of detail that we added to this, try not to use ChatGPT like me. We'd like to hear something a little bit more unique, but we'll definitely be reading them on the show. And whichever one we like the best, we'll send you something. I don't know what it'll be, but we'll send you something, something critique for sure. A surprise. Oh, but yeah, of course, send those over to crypticpodcast at gmail.com. You can check us out on most social media. We're on TikTok at cryptique underscore podcast on YouTube at cryptique podcast. We're all over the place and you can check out the kind of stuff we're already selling and maybe see an idea of what kind of prize you might win over at crypticpodcaststore.com. Amen, I brother. Forgot, I almost forgot half of what they needed to know. That's all we've got for you tonight on Cryptique. We hope you enjoyed the show. And remember, Cryptique is a brand you can trust. Good evening, Crypt Keepers. Good evening, Crypt Keepers. It's time for a special announcement. You all know about the infamous zombie road from our podcast, a real-life dark forest just west of St. Louis. Well, we're planning a free zombie road tour on Saturday, October 28th at noon. All are welcome, but the tour will include descriptions of violence, death, and hauntings. Zombie Road boasts an array of hauntings including shadow people, a railroad worker's spirit, a lady in white, old blue, the mummy, a monkey man, flannel man, black-eyed kids, and so much more. Deaths were commonplace in the area beginning with Native American battlegrounds, suicides, accidental deaths, and murders. 
The tour will be 100% free, and we will have some merch for sale, so bring some cash. Join us for a Halloween party like no other on the infamous Zombie Road. Feel free to come dressed up in your scariest costume. We'll see you there Saturday, October 28th at 12 p.m. Central Time. Sherman Beach Park, 1582 St. Paul Road, Baldwin, Missouri, 63021.